This morning we'll be reading from two passages in Luke. The first will be taken from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30, and you can find that on page 873 of your church Bibles. So that's page 873, and reading from Luke 13, 22 to 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The second reading will be taken from Luke chapter 16, verse 14 to 31, uh, page 876. And that's page 876, uh, Luke chapter 16, 14 to 31. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and may cross and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, 
If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, please keep that passage open in front of you on page um, 875. We're looking at the second passage, but read the first one for some background. One of our convictions here as a church at Chalmers is that when we read the Bible, we hear the living God speak. One of the things that happens when God speaks to us is that at times he will challenge us, say things we wouldn't have said. Um, And uh, one of the reasons we pray, therefore, as we come to God's word is for soft hearts to hear and not edit out some of the things that God says to us. So let me pray now as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we pray that I would be faithful to what your word says here. And please would you help all of us to have open ears and open hearts. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question that I realize is very, very blunt, very stark, probably very unusual question to ask in 21st century Edinburgh. But nonetheless, it is the question that Jesus is asking us this morning. And here it is. How do seemingly good people end up in hell? How do seemingly good people end up in hell? I mean, if you ever want a conversation stopper at a dinner party, if you want to leave early, you could try asking that. Well, why is it that seemingly good people, people who seem good to us, to themselves, to others, why do seemingly good people end up in hell? I realize that even mentioning the word hell will bring a whole range of reactions across the room and online this morning. Perhaps some looking into Christian things just wouldn't believe in hell, not a real place. It's, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell said, when I die, I rot. So maybe you think hell's a kind of fairy tale idea, just belongs in weird religious paintings and medieval horror stories rather than actual space-time reality. Others may think, well, actually, do you know what? I wish there was a, an eternal reckoning. I wish that people didn't get away with it, particularly the rich and the powerful who've exploited others. Isn't that why people are pulling down statues and rewriting plaques? Because they shouldn't have been allowed to get away with it. Some people want a reckoning. But it's one thing saying that slave traders and dictators of the world need to be judged by God in eternity. It's a whole other thing thinking about seemingly good people, people we know, some of our friends, colleagues, neighbors, family, perhaps some sitting here. It's a whole other thing saying, actually, we might be in danger. For those of us who are Christians, I guess many of us, if we're honest, would rather not think about it rather not talk about it. But Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Our pattern as a church is just to work through bits of the Bible. We don't airbrush bits out, we don't skip over bits we don't like. And in Luke 16, this passage, his agenda is to warn us about hell. It's worth listening to Jesus when it comes to life after death. For all that Shakespeare said, death is the, is the undiscovered country from where no traveler returns, actually Jesus Christ did come back from the grave. A historical fact attested to by multiple independent witnesses. So we're not just speculating this morning. It's not just a kind of sci-fi novel or like those Netflix documentaries about someone who had a near-death experience. We're not speculating about what lies beyond the grave. We're listening to someone who knows. And this morning, the warning is about hell. 
Jesus says that's where the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man ends up. And yes, that's a parable, and so not every detail is to be pressed literally, but Jesus is very clear in that parable and elsewhere about five deeply sobering things about hell. Number one, hell is real. Number two, hell is populated. There are people there. Number three, hell is permanent. Number four, hell is agony. Number five, and in some ways this is the most sobering of all, hell catches many people by surprise. See, Jesus wants to warn today that seemingly good people People who other, other people would have thought are absolutely fine, who would have thought of themselves as absolutely fine in God's world, actually find themselves in hell to their own surprise. If that isn't a reason to listen carefully this morning, I don't know what is. And so there's our question. How do seemingly good people end up in hell to their own surprise? Now, the audience, who is Jesus talking to? That's the question. Well, who's the audience? Well, notice 14, uh, chapter 16, verse 14 He's speaking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees who are lovers of money and ridiculing Jesus, rejecting Jesus. And that actually is important. As you sit here, if you're a Christian and sitting here and thinking, how do I apply this to myself? We need to realize that last week, Jesus spoke directly to his disciples. Start of chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples. Next week, chapter 17, verse 1, he's going to again turn to his disciples and apply some of today's truths to us to take sin seriously. But this week, he's speaking to people who are holding him at arm's length, speaking to people who are rejecting Jesus. Why were the Pharisees rejecting Jesus at this point? Well, they're laughing at his idea of spending their money so that other people can hear about forgiveness. That's what we saw last week in The Shrewd Manager, spending resources we have so that people can hear about forgiveness. Because the reality is, if you don't think yourself, you, you, myself needs forgiveness, well then why would I commit resources to other people hearing about that? And Jesus wants to give them a warning that by rejecting him, by holding him at arm's length, thinking that they're morally fine without him, well, they're in serious danger. Of course, Jesus isn't just warning the first century Jewish religious Pharisees He's warning anyone today who would say that. I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. That can happen in lots of ways. I come along to church every so often, or I'm a bit more charitable than the next person, or I'm not harming anyone. I've not really broken any UK laws, apart from the speed limit, but that doesn't count. It's okay to be in God's... Kind of, I'm okay in God's world. I think that's a very popular view in our society at the moment. Uh, not as many people now are doing it via religion, the kind of, because I do these religious things, God will be okay with me. But uh, the attitude is still around. The idea that kind of, if God's there, he couldn't possibly be upset with me. I've not done anything that bad. I work hard at the office, pay my taxes, volunteer at the sports club, recycle when I can. There's no way I could end up in hell. Now, the tragedy of this passage is that no one needs to end up in hell. As in, there's more than enough information in the Bible, even in this passage, for someone to realize they need forgiveness and turn to Jesus. No one listening this morning need go there. And actually, that's what Jesus has been saying through this whole mini bit of Luke we're in at the moment. He's been encouraging people to enter 
through the narrow door, to trust in him and enter God's kingdom for eternity, to seek forgiveness. Right, let's see how um, Jesus tries to warn these Pharisees. You'll see on the outline there's um, four points. That is a lot of points, but don't worry, we'll move through them quite quickly. Um, The first one is this, a deadly serious warning, mind the gap, from verses 14 to 15. Now, striking this, because I, I said that he'd been just speaking about money, and the Pharisees were told, verse 14, are lovers of money. So you might expect Jesus to tell them off about money. You might expect him to go straight into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But Jesus knows their use of money is a symptom of a bigger disease. There's something even more serious underlying, um, which is um, verse 15. Just listen to this. Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So what Jesus is saying is, in in their own eyes, these Pharisees were pretty good. You are those who justify yourselves. And in other people's eyes, these Pharisees were pretty good. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But in God's eyes, well, God knows your hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. One of the things I don't miss about living in London is riding the underground and hearing those regular, regular warnings to mind the gap, mind the gap. I mean, is it really necessary to keep telling us that? Um, I thought that because the the station I was used to, the the gap was really small, but then I went to one of the older stations and on a curve and actually there was a massive gap. If you weren't aware, you could easily fall through it to your own demise. And Jesus is saying there is a massive gap, Pharisees between your own assessment of your morality and the society around you's assessment of your morality and God's assessment. He sees right through you. You have a reputation for charitable giving, the Pharisees, but actually your heart loves money. You look generous because you host dinner parties for other people, but the guest list, well, it's always people who will pay you back. It's always people who add to your social standing. You're not prepared to spend any time or energy on the needy or getting the news of forgiveness out. And God is not neutral with that, that kind of self-serving hypocrisy. For what is exalted upon men is an abomination in the sight of God. Strong language that, isn't it? The just, holy God does not like the pride of someone who says, I'm basically okay, even though I'm not loving God and loving my neighbor, the way God says put it another way, as long as I don't hurt anyone, is not God's standard for human living. What does it look like to kind of proudly exalt ourselves, to justify ourselves? Well, one thing is to ridicule Jesus and his moral teaching rather than to seek forgiveness for not living up to it. Mind the gap. That's point one. A deadly serious warning. But why does it matter so much? Because Jesus, he's been talking to these Pharisees for a while and they don't seem interested. He could just walk away. He could just say, look, okay, fine. You've got your way of doing things and you're clearly not going to listen. I've got my way and fine. We'll just, we just won't talk anymore. Why is he not prepared to just leave them in their own moral self-delusion? Well, because he knows that now is the time to get right with God and they are about to miss the opportunity. This is our second point. Now is the time to seek forgiveness and enter God's long-promised kingdom. 
Verse 16 says that we're living in a big moment in human history. Just look at it. The law and the prophets were up till John. That's John the Baptist. But since then, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. The good news. We've been seeing this in Luke. The good news is the news that forgiveness is available. That's the center of Jesus' message, his gospel. That people can be forgiven and right with God for eternity. It's the most amazing offer. Um, It's for anyone, from anywhere, for anything. Anyone can be welcomed if they trust in Jesus. It's what the whole Bible's been building up to, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all building up to this moment when Jesus offers people full forgiveness. We've been hearing how at the moment, think of the, the great banquet, people are being invited to come. In fact, urged to come, go out to the highways and hedgeways and compel them to come in. And the tragedy is, these Pharisees are not, are not saying yes. They won't come to Jesus for forgiveness. Why? Well, because they think they're fine. I mean, why would we need the forgiveness Jesus offers us? And Jesus is saying, you are going to be really surprised to find yourself on the wrong side of God's verdict. You'll be really surprised to find yourself in hell. And that's why Jesus is warning them with such urgency. You may think you're okay. Others may think you're okay. But actually now is the time to respond. Like the father with the older brother a couple of weeks ago, holding his arms out. Turn around, son. That's point two. Now is the time to seek forgiveness and enter God's kingdom. You need to mind the gap. Turns out you're not quite as close to the train as you may think you are. But then after that, from verse 17 onwards, the passage seems to get a bit random. Did you notice that? There's a verse about God's law, verse 17. Then there's one verse about marriage and divorce, verse 18. And then there's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it might feel like, what is going on here? Lots of different bits. I think what's going on is that Jesus is exposing how is it that the Pharisees persuade themselves they're fine? How is it they think they're okay? in God's world? And the basic answer is they ignore what God says. They ignore God's word. So this is point three. Beware ignoring or downplaying God's words to justify your behavior. Beware ignoring or downplaying God's words to justify your behavior. What they were doing was was kind of downplaying what God says and developing their own fabricated moral standards. The way it works is verse 17 sets up the principle um, And uh, right at the end, if you turn to verse 31, Jesus is going to come back to the big principle about will you listen to what God's already said, Moses and the prophets. So you've got kind of brackets about God's word and will you listen. And then inside those are two example areas, two just kind of ground level case studies. What about marriage and what about money? You see, in both those areas, the Pharisees have developed their own moral code, their own system something that's a bit more achievable um, than what God says in the Bible. It's a lot like, actually, what's happening in secular Scotland around us today, I think. The kind of DIY approach to a moral code. Or the the supermarket approach, the kind of consumer in the moral pick and mix. I can just choose my own stream of ethics. Interestingly, the one thing that's not allowed to get in uh, a look in, it seems these days, is what God says in the Bible about right and wrong. Often, interestingly, the reason given is that it's really outdated. 
We're much more enlightened now. Kind of that's the that's the outdated ideas of another time. I think that is a kind of chronological snobbery to assume that we know better than others. But Jesus' pushback to that is verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's pretty striking, isn't it? It's easier for Arthur's seat and the Milky Way to disappear than anything in God's word. Though it makes sense, actually, because the creator wrote the Bible. That's the principle. But then Jesus has two specific examples, marriage and then money. The first one's very brief, and um, so we will tackle it briefly, and then a bit more time on the parable. Um, So first off, verse 18. I just need to say a couple of things up front. The, The first is, this is not everything Jesus says on the topic of marriage and divorce. And that's really important. It's actually the briefest statement from Jesus on the subject, Um, If you want more, you can look at Mark 10 or Matthew 19, where he goes into more detail. Um, I actually preached on Mark 10 a couple of years ago, so if you want a talk that kind of looks at what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, please go and and get that on the website. That's the first thing. This is not everything. The second thing to say, and and it would be easy, I think, to, to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here, it's really important to say that if you've been personally affected by a marriage breakdown, for whatever reason... You need to know you're welcome here, really welcome here. This is absolutely not saying that anyone who's had a divorce cannot be part of God's kingdom, nor anyone who's had a checkered sexual history. I mean, just think of the prodigal son two weeks ago. We're well aware this is a very sensitive subject, and yet Jesus isn't really teaching on it. He's using it as an illustration to the Pharisees. That's why he's so blunt and so brief here. And what's he saying to the Pharisees? Well, he's saying, you think you're A-OK morally, but let's take a case study. At the time, the Pharisees, uh, there, was, there was a debate about uh, how easy it was to get out of a marriage. One set of rabbis were saying, basically, uh, a husband could get rid of their wife really easily for any cause even as something as, um, as trivial as burning the dinner. If she disappoints you, you can move on. And they were doing it, in, they were arguing that it was all legal, all fine, all morally justified in society's eyes, that you would have nothing to be forgiven for. And Jesus says, okay, you may be justified in society's view, you may have found a legal loophole to justify yourselves. But what is exalted in the eyes of men can be an abomination in the sight of God. That is to say, God's original standard in Genesis for marriage was that one man and one woman would would become one flesh. That's God's definition, God's purpose. And yes, there was uh, legislation in the Old Testament to handle the fallout from divorce where there's been sin, particularly to protect the vulnerable party. But nevertheless, the Pharisees were finding ways to easily abandon the wife of their youth. And they didn't think they'd done anything wrong. That's the thing. In two chapters' time, in chapter 18, sorry, one chapter, we'll see um, 
a Pharisee pray, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he lists some of the ways he's not like other people. Unjust, adulterers. Jesus says, mind the gap. What can be justified in your own eyes and others' eyes is not okay with God. Now, as I said a moment ago, there's, there's so much more to say on divorce and remarriage. So please, if that is a, an issue that's live for you or you're thinking through, please do speak with, with one of the ministry team or one of the elders or a small group leader. But even as we listen to that example, I hope we can see that principle of downplaying what God's word says to justify ourselves morally, to do what we want and to say it's okay. And actually, when you think about UK society at the moment, We may not phrase it in religious terms, in terms of God's law, but our legal system increasingly enshrines personal choice as the only ethical absolute. And we are redefining marriage in various ways, undercutting what God's word says. What's the problem with divorce? It's just some paperwork. What's the problem with sleeping around with people you're not married to? If it's a free country, free choice. What's the problem of redefining God's definition of marriage between a man and a woman for life? What the Pharisees were doing was changing the socially accepted moral framework to ensure they could still do what they want and say they're doing nothing wrong. DIY morality. And Jesus says, beware, mind the gap. He thinks that's deadly serious. Let's turn to the second example then to see how serious. This is, this is not just about one issue. It's about a principle of not listening to God. So Jesus returns now to the issue of wealth. So we're into the rich man and Lazarus. It's clear this rich man is seriously rich and he's using his wealth in a self-serving way. So there was a rich man who clo- was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Such a stark image, isn't it, the contrast? Here's a man who's so wealthy he can feast every day in his designer clothing, with Lazarus, a disheveled beggar, utterly desperate at his gate and being ignored. Even from the story, there's a kind of gut feeling that that can't be right. Actually, if you know the Old Testament, even more so, this was a flagrant disregard of what God's law said for how the poor should be cared for in Israel. Just listen to this. This is an example from Deuteronomy chapter 15. God said this, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Goes on to say, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. That's a long way from the rich man or the Pharisees. Oh, that's the law. What about the prophets? Well, here's Isaiah. Um, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who've devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And those two verses are the tip of an iceberg. 
That is to say, you have to ignore a lot of what Moses and the prophets say to live the way this rich man is living. But that's the point, isn't it? It's a second example of just living the way he wants to, ignoring God's revealed words in Scripture, justifying his behavior. Like the Pharisees, laughing at the idea of Jesus using wealth to help people hear about him. Jesus wants to warn them that is a deadly danger. And so for our final point, point four, Jesus then turns directly to warn of hell. Verses 23 to 31. Now it's clear, at the moment of death for these two men, there's a great reversal. So Lazarus, the destitute beggar, turns out to be a believer in God, to be forgiven. Um, There's not not loads about him uh, because the spotlight's more on the rich man, but we're told his name, unusually uh, in the parables, most people don't get names, no no one else gets names actually, Lazarus gets a name. His name means God is my help. Um, And we heard earlier that um, with the narrow door that the key thing is whether um, Jesus knows you. So as he dies, uh, it looks like he doesn't get a burial. It's not mentioned unlike the the um, rich man, so I guess he's just thrown into the pit outside of town. But nevertheless, at that moment, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What about the rich man? Well, it couldn't be more different. He died and was buried, I'm sure, with great fanfare. And then verse 23, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, I said at the start, this is a parable. I'm not sure we're to take every single aspect literally. Certainly from the rest of the Bible's testimony, I, I don't, it seems unlikely there'll be conversations going on between those in hell and heaven. I think that's a feature of the story. But nevertheless, the imagery Jesus uses for hell is consistently terrifying. In our first reading, Luke 13, he warned of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of being cast out, of banging on the door and it not being opened. And now here, verse 23, he speaks of torments. Or verse 24, it's a place of anguish. That is to say, according to Jesus, hell is a real place, with real people and real pain. What's striking about the conversation from verse 24 onwards is that the rich man, true to form, tries to cut a deal. No doubt he's used to getting his way, used to bossing people around. So he tells Abraham to send Lazarus as a servant to ease his pain. And then we get this sobering fact about hell. Verse 25, there's no chance of respite. Abraham said, child... Remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's no chance of respite, no chance of return. This is a permanent state, says Jesus. Like with a narrow door, when it closes, it closes. There's no switching afterwards. There's no purgatory to work your way back. And so I wonder, therefore, if we're starting to understand why Jesus was warning the Pharisees 
Jesus actually understands what's coming. He knows it. And so he wants them to wise up, to mind the gap, to enter the kingdom while there's opportunity, to seek forgiveness. Because he knows that when death comes, there's no second chance. The rich man finally realizes there is no chance for him. And then I think one of the most harrowing aspects of the story in verse 27 It's the only place I can think of in the Bible where we hear the testimony of someone who dies unforgiven and what they'd want to say to their family. Verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Somebody please warn them. Warn them that they're in danger. Warn them that they're not as good as they think they are. Warn them they need forgiveness. Warn them that hell is real and people like us end up there. What does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That is, the warning's already been issued. That's what the Bible has been saying for generations. The rich man tries to keep negotiating he said no father Abraham if someone goes to them from the dead then they will repent at which point the shocking revelation comes that if they're so determined to ignore what God says if they won't mind the gap when the Bible says there is a gap well then even if someone rose from the dead they wouldn't listen which of course is the situation we're in today Jesus did actually rise from the dead, multiply attested, multiple witnesses, a historical fact. And yet still many will write him off as religious superstition. There's the Bible, there's the risen Lord Jesus. Let me sum up, and then I just want to close by asking why is Jesus telling us all this? Let me sum up. The the opening question we had was, how do seemingly good people end up in hell? And I think we've seen the answer, that they persuade themselves they're good in their own eyes, in the eyes of others, by ignoring what God says. By ignoring it when God says, mind the gap. It's a sobering, terrifying passage. It, It is a warning Jesus is telling it straight. But why is Jesus telling us this? And what is his motive? Because Jesus is about as far away as you can get from the kind of stereotypical pulpit-thumping, veins-bursting, angry preacher man who's somehow taking pleasure in scaring people with horror stories of hell. Jesus is the most loving and compassionate man to ever live. So why is he telling us this? Well, very straightforwardly, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, Jesus is saying it so you would turn and seek forgiveness. Now is the time. Now is the window of opportunity. Jesus warns people of hell because he wants to save them from there. What about for us who are already followers of Jesus? Luke told us right at the start of the gospel, he wrote this book so we could have certainty Certainty about things like what happens after death. How does it help us to be certain of hell? 
After all, many of us, I guess, would find this a deeply painful subject to think about, to talk about. I'm sure none of us have enjoyed this morning. How does it help us to have certainty on this? Well, let me ask, put it like this. In Luke chapter 15, why is there so much joy over a single sinner who turns and trusts in Jesus? Why is there so much joy when a lost person is found? Because heaven knows what they're actually found from, what they've been saved from. The more we realize that for ourselves and for those around us, well, the more we will have real joy in Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. Likewise, last week, the shrewd manager challenged us to be willing to use our resources in this world to maximize the chance of people hearing about forgiveness. Let me say, the more we realize hell is real and real people go there, the more that that will be something we want to do. Now we'll see more next week as well, that we can ourselves be in danger of downplaying God's word. This is also a warning, as we'll see next time, the, the need to take God seriously when he warns us of sin. But right now, let me pray as we reflect on how good Jesus has been to rescue us and warn us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you that he speaks truth because he loves us and loves the world. And we pray very much that you would help us to take his words to heart. Pray for those who are worried about their eternal state, that they would know that trusting in Jesus is enough to forgive us for eternity. Pray for those who are worried for others. Please would you help us to be prayerful and to keep pointing to the Lord Jesus. And we pray so much this would be a...